This is Encounters, a dialogue that brings you multifaceted life stories you don't want to miss. There are a lot of positive stories to be told about China. China's not perfect by any means. There's plenty of room for criticism. If you want to know what's wrong with China, there are a thousand Western correspondents who will spend their time doing nothing else but telling what's wrong with China. I'm quite happy to provide a balance. I don't claim to provide a total view. I will look for something positive to say so that somewhere out there, if you're interested, you can find something positive. I'll tell you the other side of the story. I think the most important thing to do is to go directly to people. Do not allow the story to be filtered through Western politicians. Do not allow the story to be filtered through the Western media. What we really need to be talking about is stories. The best stories that China has to tell is poverty alleviation. They've done a far better job than anybody ever has in history of doing that. It's perceived as a threat. Yeah, perceived, perceived that's the word. Threat. And there is, unfortunately, an influential and powerful voice in the West which insists on perceiving as China as a threat. They cannot imagine that China will not seek hegemony because they cannot imagine that they would not seek hegemony if they were in China's position. And therefore they project onto China the problem that is in their minds. In my view, China will not seek hegemony. I do not believe it is in the nature of the Chinese people, and I do not believe that based on the history that they have had, I do not believe that they will seek the type of hegemony that the West has exercised over the world for the past couple of years. I just don't think they'll do it. Hello and welcome. I'm Manling in Beijing. Making Chinese political texts understandable to foreign readers is a challenging job, especially when idioms, ancient quotations, and figures of speech add complexity to the context. My guest David Ferguson is one of those rare foreigners who dare to take the challenge. This Scottish editor has been heavily involved in the translation of volumes one and two of Xi Jinping: The Governance of China. David also works as an author and a reporter. He says he's determined to tell more positive China stories to Western readers. What prompted him to do so? Stay tuned to find out. When did you get your first job here in China? You applied it online, or somebody introduced or recommended you to? Well, I'd been working. An organization. I'd been working in Zealand for a couple of years, and I'd been as do, a, I'd been doing this football agency, which wasn't really working. I'd done a little bit of work as a consultant as well with the city government, trying to help them to improve their FDI offering. <laughs> Things weren't really working out, and、uh, I recognised I needed a job. And it was actually my wife who found a job, an advert online, and it was as a journalist and editor with China Org. Which is the online news provider, the internet news and information provider for CIPG.、And、what actually happened was that this was in March 2008, and in March 2008, you will recall there were the riots in Tibet, 
And I was watching the media coverage in China and I was watching the media coverage in the West. And it became very apparent to me that the story that the Western audience were being told by their media bore very little resemblance to the truth. I could see that. Common sense told me that. Can you give me more details? Yes, I can give you some examples. The Western media were plastered with fake images. Photos, for example, of incidents in Nepal, where Nepalese police were attacking Tibetans. Photos of incidents in India, where Indian police were attacking Kashmiris. They had nothing at all to do with China, and they were being presented to the Western audience as Chinese police brutality against Tibetans. I mean, completely fake images. Some of the photos were just photoshops and they weren't even amateur. And this stuff was being plastered across the Western media and the Western audience was being told about this brutality in Tibet and it bore no resemblance to what had actually happened. And I actually got quite annoyed about it. And I thought to myself, and I will at least try to provide a little bit of balance to the story. So I decided to take the job and I went to, and I came to Beijing and I joined China Org as a journalist and as an editor. What was the first big event you covered? Well, I joined at the end of April 2008, and then there was the terrible earthquake in uh, Wenchuan. So the first big job I had to do, I was sent down to Wenchuan to cover the aftermath of the earthquake. So within just a couple of weeks of taking the job on, I found myself down in Sichuan. I was actually the first foreign journalist working with the Chinese media to get accreditation to go down. It was actually easier for the foreign journalists working for the foreign media to go there. Uh, It took a few days to get my authorization. In a sense, it meant the worst of the tragedy was over by the time I got there, which I guess is a positive thing. I wasn't confronted with some of the worst images which the people who got there early were confronted with. Were you able to cover the story with your own perspective? Yes, I was. I was able to do that without any difficulty at all. And what is interesting is that there was a controversy about the quality of the building, which again was magnified way out of proportion, in my view, in the Western media. I was there and I saw stuff. I did see some buildings that appeared to have collapsed because they weren't properly built. And I asked my editors if I could write about it. And I was given approval to write about it, but I didn't want to do it unless I was sure of what I was writing about. So I took photographs and reports and I sent them to one of the Scottish universities, to the most eminent technical Scottish university where I knew there would be experts. And they wrote back to me and they said they couldn't confirm with surety my suspicions about the problems with the actual buildings. So I ended up not writing these stories, not because the Chinese wouldn't allow me to, but because I decided not to, because I wasn't going to write something unless I was absolutely certain that I could back it up the fact. As in a journalistic sort of quality control of yourself, of your articles, you didn't report on that. But I was given approval by my editor. But I did find that while I was working as a journalist in China Org, I actually had far more freedom to write about stuff than I would have had as a journalist in the West. I wasn't pigeonholed into a specific sector. And every single time I said to them, can I write about this? The answer was always, yeah, go ahead. I had far more freedom. There was one other thing I wanted to say about Sichuan, which I think is very important before we move on from that, which was that, as I say, I went down afterwards, after the worst was over. And this might sound strange, but it was quite a positive experience. The reason for that is because I saw how resilient people can be. 
I was in the city of Myanyang. It was a big refugee camp in a sports stadium. And I spent an afternoon there with my colleagues and there were a whole load of kids running around. And some of these kids had lost their families. They were orphans. Some of them were refugees with their families. But they saw this Waigoran and they got quite excited about a Waigoran because a lot of them came from the countryside. And I spent an hour or two playing with them. And within an hour or two, they were laughing again. And the parents were watching us and they were laughing again. They found something to smile about despite the tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it just shows how resilient people can be. Mm -hmm. The other thing that impressed me very much was the organised level of the response. Because I'd run projects as a management consultant and I know how difficult it is to organise resources and people and make something happen. This is a massive tragedy completely unanticipated, much bigger than anything I'd ever been involved with. And I would have expected naturally a level of chaos in the response. And there wasn't a level of chaos in the response. It was brilliantly organised. And just a few, less than a week after the earthquake, I was in a place called Doyang, where they were building a refugee village. They were building temporary shelters. And I would have expected the tradesmen to be in one place and the materials to be in another and the refugees, crowds of refugees in a third place. What was actually happening was the materials were there and the tradesmen were there and they were building houses. They'd built a school, they'd built public area. They were building houses and as they were nailing the roof on the house, the police were moving a family into that house Mm -hmm. and it was exactly the opposite of what I would have expected it was a hugely impressive job of organising and getting things right and getting the response right and that left a very big impression on me, it's about Chinese people are good at getting stuff done Yes indeed, Um, we do have this um image of being diligent and resilient, but you were there to witness. Yes, both uh, the resilience, the ability to respond to tragedy tragedy. and the ability to get something done. Mm -hmm. This is as a journalist, you were sending to fields to cover stories and then back home in office, you work as an editor and as a polisher of, especially to better the English expressions of the Chinese colleagues. I want to know that, do you find your Chinese colleagues pleasant to work with, easygoing, and uh, have any of them become your friends? Yes, I find my Chinese colleagues very easygoing and very easy to work with. Uh, Obviously, all of the people, pretty much all of the people that I work with are translators, so they have a very good English, so it's easy for me to communicate with them. And both of my bosses have been women, In fact, all three of the bosses that I've had have been women. So I can see that it is possible for women to actually move into senior positions in Chinese companies, businesses and organisations. Have you ever heard of um, our former leader Mao Zedong's famous quotations that the women occupies half of the sky? Yes, I know that quotation. And how is your take on that? I think it's actually three quarters. I think women actually occupy three quarters of the sky. (laughs) (laughs) They're holding up half of the men's share as well. Yeah, indeed. Uh, The humorous way of putting it, that China did achieve equality and fairness in women better than many other countries. Very much so, very much so. And then across all walks of life, if you see people mending roads, if you see tradespeople doing house renovation or house decoration, you find a lot of women, a lot of women tilers, a lot of women on the roads working. What's notable is that There aren't so many women in senior political positions. The question I have is, why are they not there? Are they not there because they're not allowed to be there? Are they not there because they don't choose to be there? 
and the Western argument is they're not there because they're not allowed to be there. I think women and men are different. There are differences between men and women, and I think there are some things that women don't do because they don't choose to do, not because they're not allowed to do or not able to do. That's in your China, understanding. In China, I'm very confident that if a woman wants to do something, she will be able to achieve it. Yeah, because we have、uh, duties as a wife, you know, like your wife, managing your life and your son's life, right? Well, it might be a duty or it might be a choice. Yeah, definitely,、it、might be a choice. And then, especially one thing comes to my mind is that、uh, you actually participated in editing the first and second volumes of Xi Jinping, the Governance of China. Can you share with me that how you try to translate? Our top leaders' ideas accurately and beautifully. It was a very tough project. Both of them were tough projects. The first book, there were two English language editors, myself and my colleague. But on the second project, my colleague would have taken part, but he wasn't well by then. So I was the only English language editor. We had a team of about twenty-five people on the English version alone: translators, senior translators, or finalizers. And myself, it was harder in a sense because I had more work to do. It was a bit easier in a sense because I knew where we were. Everything came through me as the English language edited, so I know I knew what had been done and I knew what I had done with it. We worked weekends. We worked late. We worked. We had tight deadlines. We had a better process for the second book because we had the experience of the first book. So the team worked together better, and I think we did a better job. I think we did a better job of the translation. I think we did a better job of the editing. We had a small group, a core group that used to meet every morning,、Do、and they used to discuss specific problems and solve the problems. That helped a lot too. Uh-huh. Do you have difficulties in translating Chinese idioms and the、uh, ancient philosophical sort of lines that quoted by Xi Jinping? Yes, that is a difficulty, and it's a problem not only in terms of language. Now, I don't do the translation. Bear in mind, but I, you polish the language. But you need to understand、language. it, right? Yes, I do, and it's a bit unfortunate because one of the things that Xi Jinping is most noted for is his ability to use aphorisms and figures of speech and things like that. The Problem is that that kind of stuff doesn't translate easily from one language into another, as you'll be well aware. It's a bit like poetry. Yes, of course, but it's how, not easy to translate. How did you make it understandable for English readers? It wasn't always easy to do that. And I'll give you a specific example quickly, if I can. For example, there's a reference to the CPC being the lead goose in the flock. Now I knew what it meant because I know enough about it. The lead goose in a flying goose formation sets the pace and the direction, and the beating of the lead goose's wings actually creates turbulence that makes it easier for the other geese to fly, and that's why they fly in a V formation.、Mm-hmm. So the lead goose is a strong, powerful figure、mm-hmm. giving direction and support.、Mm-hmm. In English, the only figurative use we make of goose. Is somebody who's done something silly or idiotic? So you would never call a person a goose in English as a compliment. And how、so、did the you? The figure of speech just doesn't work in English because、yeah. it didn't capture the idea of the CPC being、mm. a powerful, strong, leading figure. And there are a lot of occasions. I mean, that、yeah. was a particularly extreme example, but it's not easy to translate these aphorisms. 
So on daily basis, you were bridging, you were telling them, you know, what you think appropriate and yes. would convey yes. the real meaning mm. to English speakers yes. and and make Chinese translators to understand, right? We do have uh, different expressions and different metaphors and yes. all these analogies, different yes. analogies Absolutely. in Absolutely. culture, but we definitely can find the similar ones, right? Well, we can look for them. Sometimes we can find one that we can find something that works. For mm -hmm. example, it takes a good smith to forge good iron. Mm -hmm. We can make that work in English and it has the same. In your already very busy schedule on daily basis as an editor and sometimes journalist, you went to universities to give seminars, attend seminars and workshops and to interact with Chinese students there. Why did you decide to do that? Well, I didn't actually so much decide to do that. It was something that happened as a result of having worked on the governance books. I was asked to give a couple of presentations and that were assignments from your group. Well, and I was your asked, press. yes, I was asked ah. to talk to, for example, our colleagues who weren't part of the team. I was asked to give a presentation in English on the thing. And one of the things that happened was that it's really tough. Xi Jinping thought is not easy. It's a huge book, profound, a lot of complexity, a lot of depth. So the books are not easy to read and they're not easy to read for anybody. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I discovered is it becomes much easier if you stop looking at it as a whole load of individual items. Mm. That you can actually create a structure, right, starting at the top with the Chinese dream. You mm -hmm. can work down through all these different things and they actually fit together as a structure. Now, I don't think that that was deliberate and I don't think it was conscious, but they do fit together. You've got the Chinese dream, you've got the two centennial goals, and then you've got the four comprehensive strategy. And they all fit as a hierarchy and they all fit into different categories. And when I realized that, it became much easier to understand and it became much easier to present to other people. I did a couple of presentations and I used this stuff. They're all saying, wow, this is great. Now I can understand much better. I started being invited to do seminars and presentations in other places as well, and notably universities. So it's it's another job created from um, as a publisher and editor well, of that yes. book. Because and I'm very lucky because I have kind of unique selling proposition. Yeah, I yeah, have yeah. skills and knowledge and experience that there's literally nobody else has. Be so I'm not competing with, <laughs> I'm not in a highly competitive market. No, but you have this unique capacity to tell people how you understood and how you absorbed actually. You actually digested Xi Jinping's ideas in your own way by understanding it and mm. polishing the language. And then you're not keeping this understanding, the knowledge to yourself, you're sharing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're yes. breaking down all the difficult concepts and mm. ideas and even philosophies whatever, and into understandable languages to Chinese students. Once I heard you, I said, it's part of your responsibility to be presenting China in a positive way to international community, like um, you wanted to present the real picture of Tibet and how people are living and working here in China. But can you tell us more? about how you understand to present China in a positive way. But what about the critical way? Well, there are a lot of positive stories to be told about China. China's not perfect by any means. There's plenty of room for criticism. The approach I adopt is very simple. If you want to know what's wrong with China, there are a thousand Western correspondents who will spend their time doing nothing else but telling 
what's wrong with China. If you want to know what's wrong with China, go and read some of their stuff. I'm quite happy to provide a balance. I don't claim to provide a total view. I will look for something positive to say so that somewhere out there, if you're interested, you can find something positive. I can talk about positive stories about poverty alleviation. I can talk about positive stories about the anti-corruption campaign. I can write positive stories about the Belt and Road. And there are positive things to be said about all of them. So that's my answer is very simple. If you want to read about what's wrong with China, there's a thousand people happy to tell you. I'll tell you the other side of the story. So there are two sides of a coin because too many Western journalists are covering ones or focusing on one side of the coin. You decided to yes, and I focus bring on the other way. side of the coin to yeah. the world. Yes, and I think it's more and more important to do that because I think the situation is getting worse. But why was that? When I first came to China, China was a growing country, getting stronger, but it wasn't a threat. In the 14 years since I've been here, that has changed. China has gone from the fifth to the second largest economy. China, it's perceived as a threat. Yeah, perceived, it's perceived that's as the a word. Threat. If your need is to dominate, if your wish is hegemony, then China is going to be a threat to you. And there is, unfortunately, an influential and powerful voice in the West, which insists on perceiving as China as a threat. They cannot imagine that they would not be a threat if they were in China's position, and therefore they project onto China the problem that is in their minds. And it's about what China's agenda is. They cannot imagine that China will not seek hegemony because they cannot imagine that they would not seek hegemony if they were in China's position. So they are using their perspective to understand China. Yes, exactly. They do not really understand China. Exactly, exactly. And now, in my view, China will not seek hegemony. I do not believe it is in the nature of the Chinese people, and I do not believe that based on the history that they have had, I do not believe that they will seek the type of hegemony that the West has exercised over the world for the past couple of years. I just don't think they'll do it. I've spent 14 years here Many of them have never set foot in China. They know next to nothing about the place. They know nothing other than what they're told in the media. As we've just mentioned, the media is telling a partial story. So I don't believe that they understand. I believe that Xi Jinping genuinely thinks that China can avoid the Thucydides trap, mm. which is that exchange of power between mm. a falling power and a rising power Emerging, that creates yeah. war. Mm -hmm. I think that Xi Jinping genuinely believes that China can avoid that. And I think mm. they genuinely want to avoid it, but it takes two to avoid it. If yeah. one side doesn't believe it can be avoided, then mm. it's li the risk is that it might happen. Unfortunately, I would say it's getting worse. It's, and the reason it's getting worse is because China's getting stronger. Mm -hmm. The stronger China gets, the more these people are going to see it as a threat and the more they're going to react to the mm -hmm. threat. So, In your eyes, what is a fix? How do you fix such a situation? The misunderstanding is being deeper and deeper. I think the most important thing to do is to go directly to people. Do not allow the story to be filtered through Western politicians. Do not allow the story to be filtered through the Western media. And it comes back to one of the things that I mentioned earlier on, which I don't know if you recall, that China is really good at making films. China is actually very good at telling stories. So we should it, continue to tell good stories, right? A film goes straight to the audience. A film doesn't get filtered by the media. It doesn't get filtered by the politicians. Yes. If you can tell a story to the direct to the audience, then that will 
help. You actually mentioned in previous interview or publicity about the poverty alleviation effort. I think we need to focus far more attention on that kind of thing. A lot of the discourse is about conceptual, abstract matters. What we really need to be talking about is stories. We need See, to be telling stories. One I, of the best stories that China has to tell is poverty alleviation. It's the most successful program they've organised. They've done a far better job than anybody ever has in history of doing that. And that is the kind of thing that we should be focusing on. And it's actually worth pointing out that China Org, along with the World Bank, runs a, an international web portal which covers poverty alleviation. And it does exactly what we need to be doing. It tells stories about people and things that are happening in an interesting and engaging way. And that is one of the reasons why it's so important that we focus on it. We've got a good story to tell and there are actually people who are doing a good job of telling it. Instead of giving people dry data, you know, how many people we helped pull out of poverty, we tell humanity yes, stories yes, yes, and how yes. we did it. It engages with people on a human level and that is what a lot of our material doesn't do. It engages with people on a human level, it touches them. The reason why it's working is because the people who are doing it are the right kind of people. The young people are open-minded people, are broad-minded people. They understand things, they know how to talk to people. A lot of them have studied abroad. A lot of them speak English. They have a different outlook and they know how to tell a story. David works for the Foreign Languages Press, one of China's best-known publishing houses. By helping his Chinese colleagues polish their English language, David has established himself as a highly valued translator and editor. He has written a book called English, Chinglish and Ronglish to help Chinese readers correct their English. Ronglish is a word he's proud of inventing, and he says it means English only wrong. David writes in his book the USA has been involved in a long-standing campaign to turn things that are wronglish into English. Is that true? If you're interested, why not get a copy on Amazon? And that's the end of our show. I'm Manling. Thank you for listening. If you liked it and want to listen to us again, just to find us on our website, chinaplus.cri.cn and Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm.